continuing on in our series, Unprogressive. We're in part three this week, and uh, I'm going to start today off with a video clip. And there are two video clips in the message today, and they're both from the movie um, the American Gospel Part 2. I had mentioned that to you earlier earlier on um, before we started the series, but I want to remind you that when you look at these, because they're very short clips, you're going to see two sides of the argument. So you're, gonna, you're not seeing everybody leaning in the same direction. You're going to see two parts of a conversation. And the first one kind of starts off the message today reminding you of why we're doing this. Uh, and this is the uh, kind of the foundational argument of the progressive movement, uh, which is what sparked this, this series. So this is the first clip. The two paths that came together to form the emerging church movement in the late 1990s were one was a group of people who were questioning the methods of church as big business. And I wonder about these multi-millionaire preachers who are fleecing their congregations and they watch their own people in dire poverty They have this world's goods, and they're not sharing what they had with those who are in need in their own communities. It scares me. The emerging church movement actually was right in a lot of their criticisms of shallow evangelicalism, pragmatic evangelicalism. The entire millennial generation had, for the most part, those that had grown up as evangelicals, had grown up in children's church and then youth group movements where pretty much the emphasis was on fun and games, not teaching. And so it's a generation of people who were not taught scripture, and so they were pretty quick to throw it out. There's a sort of a comfort in knowing that, one, I don't have to have the answers, and that there aren't necessarily answers. Then you had another stream that was people who were questioning the theology, the doctrine, the core message of the gospel, like what's the gospel really about? And we were reading people who had been considered off limits by a lot of evangelicals. We were reading like feminist theology and liberation theology and things like that. But the idea was, look, times are changing. We're moving out of the modern realm and into the postmodern realm. And the distinctive feature of postmodernism was always skepticism. The, The modernist thought, we can know for sure what truth is because science will tell us. And postmodernism has given up on that fallacy and now concluded that really nothing can tell us for sure what truth is. We talked a lot about the Bible. So in this movement, what you end up with is some good arguments that have a point and some really, really bad arguments that need to be dealt with. And in the infancy of this argument, uh, of this particular movement, you find things that actually make sense. I mean, there's no reason for any of us to deny that the, that the evangelical church, the Christian church, has a checkered background. Right? We have some bad leaders in the past. We have some bad leaders today. You know, when you got someone standing up in front of their congregation going on TV asking for $65 million for a new Gulfstream because their old Gulfstream is just old. You know, it's like 10 years old. My goodness, a 10-year-old Gulfstream, how can they, how can they live with themselves, you know? Or you got, these, you got some ministers that are worth over $300 million, and they're constantly asking people for money for things they could just write a check for, you know, just dumb stuff. So it makes, I mean, it does make sense for people to look at the Christian church and go, I don't want any part of this. You know, I don't want my donations, I don't want my tithes and my offerings to go someone who's just going to buy another $3 million home. 
Joel Osteen owns a $10.5 million home in Houston and a $3 million home in Houston in the same area. I mean, if that's his, you know, wife's mad at me doghouse, that's a pretty nice doghouse, right? I mean, but these are all things paid for by people who are supposed to be giving to the work of the Lord. So I totally understand that side of the argument. I totally understand that because these people who are misusing and misrepresenting the word of God shouldn't be followed. They shouldn't be supported because they're misusing the word of God. The problem is they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. They've taken the truth of God and thrown it out and lumped it in the same category as the, as the false teachers themselves. What a horrible thing. Could you imagine going to see a doctor who's not a good doctor? And by the way, anyone in the healthcare profession will tell you there are good doctors and there are don't let that guy dab you with a needle. My sister's a nurse. She used to work the overnights uh, in the emergency room in, in Watertown. One of the things she said, so what do you do a lot during the night? She goes, honestly, correct a lot of the doctor's mistakes prescriptions that are wrong, medications that are wrong, medications that the patient's allergic to because the doctor didn't have time to read the chart. These things happen. You know, this is, but could you imagine being in that and deciding I'm never going to see a doctor again? All medicine is evil because that one guy wasn't, wasn't very good at their job. Really? That would just be silly. It would be like not eating any, I'm not going to eat the rest of my life because I had a bad meal. Good, good for you. You're going to get real thin. That's not how it works. See, the question is whether or not they is not whether or not they had a good argument that these people are bad representations of the Christian life. The problem is, is they're making God once again pay for the sin of man. Can, can I say that again? When you throw away the truth of Scripture because of a bad representative, once again God is paying the price for the sin of men. You're lumping God in the same category as a bad representative. And so what they did is they let go of the authority of Scripture. We talked about this at length last week. And they decided that the Bible is not only not the word of God, there's nothing in the Bible that actually is relevant to me today. It's a good moral book. It's a book about God, but it's not God's word to us. That's how they've decided to characterize the book. And that one decision in the progressive movement is the foundation stone to all the rest of their theology and all the rest of the mistakes. And a lot of them we're going to talk about today. And the first mistake, well, actually the second issue that we're going to deal with is the progressive view that the gospel message is not Jesus died for our sins. This is one of the foundational messages in the progressive church that Jesus did not die for your sin. Tony Jones, one of the guys we're going to hear about, he actually says it like this, by what cosmic mechanism does the death of Jesus pay for my sins? He can't get there. Now, the funny thing is, if you actually look in the pages of Scripture, it's very easy to find. It's actually all over the place. But if you don't value the Word of God, then the answer is irrelevant to you, and it doesn't make sense to you, because a good God would never do this. They don't believe the testimony of God through his word, so they don't believe the promise of redemption through Christ that is only found in God's word. So this is a second video clip, and I want to hear 
I want you to hear them explaining this as well as some of the argument against it. And one of the things I want you to pay attention to uh, towards the end, there's a guy named Alistair Begg on there, and he puts out a little step-by-step example of how we can see Jesus through the entire Bible that I think is absolutely fantastic. Uh, and we'll, we'll look at that again in a minute, but here's the clip. It's a bad question that is not answerable. You cannot answer what is the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for my sin. That's not the gospel. Jesus was preaching the gospel before he died on the cross for sin. So like Mark chapter 1, Jesus starts preaching the gospel. What was he preaching? He hadn't died yet. Nobody had unpacked any of it. So it must be more than his death on the cross, or we wouldn't even have the gospels. We would just have, Jesus died. Here's some Paul. So if he went out and started preaching the gospel, I know that no matter what, whatever he was preaching is different than what I've been told the gospel is. Yeah, yeah. As a boy growing up, it was explained to me that the Bible is a book about Jesus. Jesus is himself the gospel, the good news. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist points to it. So in the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the gospels, he's revealed. In the Acts, he's preached. In the epistles, he's explained. And in the book of Revelation, he's expected. It's a bad question. That it's the Old Testament, he's predicted. In the Gospels, he's revealed. In the Acts, he's preached. In the epistles, he's explained. And in Revelation, he's expected. What an amazing way to look at the scriptures and seeing Jesus all through the scriptures. Now, their view is that because... Jesus was preaching that the gospel is at hand before he went to the cross, that the cross could not be the gospel, that the death of Christ is not the good news. Rob Bell actually says, how could the death of anyone be good news? Now, it's it's amazing when you don't value the scripture, how easy it is to get off track. Because it is the death of Jesus that is the good news. So our question is, how is the death of Jesus good news? How is it that this can be something that I should look forward to, should even celebrate? How is it that the death of Christ on the cross is something I should lift my hands up and thank God for? Can God be good if he put Jesus to death on my behalf? Is that a good God? He'd kill his own son? Now the question is, did he? Or did he simply allow it? And did Jesus go willingly? for a specific purpose. So the progressive movement refers to the to Christ's crucifixion on the cross as cosmic child abuse. If we believe that God sacrificed Christ for the sin of the world, he would they call that cosmic child abuse. That God couldn't be good in that in that respect. So what they teach is that Jesus died, Jesus was crucified, and he died not because he was the Savior and meant to die on the cross, but because the, now listen to this, the authorities of the day did not like him because he was a social reformer. He preached equity and equality. Is this message resonating with anyone to, for, for what you're hearing today? You want to know why young people are being drawn to the progressive argument today? Because Jesus is no longer savior. Jesus is a social justice warrior. 
And he died for that. There are people who will preach that if the disciples had a backbone, Jesus would have lived. Jesus only died because they failed to protect him. This is an out, this is an argument that's out there. And honestly, when you hear their argument, you should at least for a moment go, okay, I understand where they're coming from. Can I explain why they're wrong? That's a question you need to be able to answer. Can you explain why they're wrong? After today, you will be. You will totally be able to. Because what happens is they're missing the entire point of the Gospels. They're missing the entire point of the Bible. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist is, is baptizing people. And the Pharisees are getting on his nerves. And finally, in the midday, John looks up and says, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And John says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, any Jew at that point would have known perfectly well what that meant. Because they were completely aware of penal substitutionary atonement. That the life of an innocent would be sacrificed, the blood would be spilt for the sins of another. It was always a lamb. Without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle. Perfect. A perfect life given for an imperfect. So any Hebrew would have known what John was talking about. The problem is they wouldn't have known how this was supposed to play out because the Hebrew church at the time didn't know really what the Messiah was supposed to come and do. The Pharisees and the religious leaders were constantly asking Jesus, basically, can you tell me why you're here? Because we got this wrong. It's like today, people trying to predict the end times. I love that. The Bible says no one's going to get it right. So why do we keep trying? Because we want to be convinced that we have something right. So here's something I want to ask. Where in your Bible does the gospel message start? Can anyone answer that? Book, chapter, verse. Can you tell me where the gospel message begins? What's that? Okay, you got the right book, Genesis, but I didn't hear the numbers. Not one, one. That's creation. Three, one. Genesis. 3, 1 is where the gospel message begins. Let me show you. I'm going to show you the sin that brought it all on us, and then we're going to talk about the redemption that takes it all away from us. Okay? This is why we have the book of Genesis, to help us understand how we got into the conflict that we're in. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said? I want to stop right there for a quick second. The temptation that brought about the fall of mankind was the question, Did God really say? We're being tempted to doubt God's word. Okay? That's the first temptation. 
Did God really say? And Eve actually answers correctly. Why, yes, he did. Yes, he did. He did say. She knew. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the trees in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Exactly. Exactly. No. What they needed was a baby. That's, that's what, 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 what supposed to, should have happened. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now listen to this carefully. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. It doesn't take a genius to know good and evil, but that doesn't make you God. Right? So the temptation is a lie. So the woman saw that the tree was good and she ate it. And some people think Eve brought sin into the world and poor Adam, Eve took this apple and surreptitiously brought it to him. Sneaky. You should eat this. This is really wonderful. This is fantastic. It's not. He was right there. He was right there going, I don't know if I'd do that if I were you. It's kind of sounding like, you know, every husband when their wife is shopping. Uh Uh-huh. You want to eat? Fine, I'm bored. I'll eat it. It didn't make any difference. He wasn't protecting his wife, which is why the Bible says through Adam, sin entered the world. Eve ate first, right? Through Adam, sin entered the world. Why? Because the husband is responsible for his family. Husbands, you should probably think about this. It doesn't matter if your wife did it. You are responsible for what happens under your roof. Period. End of story. When Adam said, Lord, it was that woman you gave me, it didn't work for him. It ain't going to work for you either. This is why the husband is supposed to be the head of the house, because he's responsible for the house. That's completely separated. Let's move on. So salvation and the forgiveness of sin are at the heart of the message, message of redemption. But the question needs to be asked, redeemed from what? The message of the gospel is one of salvation and forgiveness and the redemption of the soul, but redeemed from what? What are we being redeemed from? What did Jesus come to do that we were not able to do ourselves? All the way back in the garden, mankind was tempted with a lie, and that lie was that God's word can't be trusted as it's given. And the reason why God's word can't be trusted as it's given is because God is hiding something amazing from you. God is hiding something from you that that you need, that you want, that you should desire. And what he's hiding from you is that you're just like him. You're just like God. You can determine right and wrong. You can determine moral and immoral. You can call things into existence. This is a doctrine preached by some churches today. You can speak things into existence from nothing into, into the physical world. I've never seen any of them do it, and none of them have actually ever said that, uh, said that they have done it, but they all believe that they can. I'm relatively sure in most places that's going to get you locked up with a nice jacket, lots of buckles, in a room with lots of mattresses. It's not right thinking. The idea that I can be God is literally the oldest lie in the book. But that's the, that's the temptation. But you see, in order to get that thing that God is keeping from us, all I have to do is ignore his word. All I have to do is decide 
that what he has told me is true is not true, and then I'll find the real truth. See, I've got a risk going beyond the book. I've got to go, I've got a risk. See, God's bigger than his book. Anyone ever heard that message? God's so much bigger than his book. Uh, okay, well, this is a book. I would hope God, I'm bigger than the book. But everything about God is in the book. If it's not, it would be incomplete. But he tells us that we have the full and complete word of God. We have everything we need to understand and know him. But all I have to do is decide that this can't be trusted, and then I can decide what's right, what's good, what will get me into heaven, and what won't. And in the progressive doctrine, everything will get you into heaven because God's good. Everyone goes to heaven. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that wonderful? Makes that whole judgment thing totally out the window. See, because of the sin of rebelling against God's, rebelling against God's word, the spiritual bond between creator and creation was broken. See, God said, if you eat of this, you'll die. They ate. Their physical bodies didn't die. But is, is God a liar? We have to ask the question, is God a liar? He said, you'll die. Their physical bodies didn't die. So that begs the question, what died? Jesus actually answered that question for us in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. And he says, you cannot enter the kingdom unless you are born again. And Nicodemus says, come again. In verse 5, Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So if we were think, if this is, if this is true, if something died in the garden, then it has to be the spiritual connection between creation and creator. That's what died. So when Jesus comes to bring us the rebirth of the spirit, which is where we get the term born again Christian, the rebirth can only be the thing that died. It's the Spirit of God breathed into us from creation that died. Now Jesus is coming to set things right so that that Spirit can be reborn within us so we are now reconnected to God. And I know that for some of you that might sound super spiritual or just weird, but I need you to understand something. Every person that I've ever known that has been saved who has been in the church, people who grew up in the church, just because your kids grow up in church doesn't mean they're Christians. Parents, you need to know that, okay? Every person that I know that grew up in church, that when they got saved, they all have the same testimony. My eyes were opened and I began to understand the Bible. I began to hear God the way I used to pretend I would hear God. I began to experience God in worship the way I used to fake experiencing God in worship. These are real testimonies. Because there was a connection between them and their creator that was not there before. They were going through motions, but they didn't have the connection. But now they do. And it's interesting when that happens and parents say, no, 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 you're, you were a Christian before. And they say, no, I wasn't. I was faking it. Don't say that. You were on the worship team. Happens all the time, folks. See, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The word enmity means hostility, a state of conflict or war. I'm going to place war between what you, but between you and the woman. The woman represents the fall of man. 
He represents the reason. Basically, what God is saying is, we are now in a state of war. Well, war has a purpose. The purpose is you. The purpose is your soul. That very moment, God declared war on the enemy of our soul. To get back what was lost. To reclaim what is rightfully his. But he has to do it in a way where the end result is eternal. And this war is fought in a way that we don't understand, folks. God is at war to reclaim humanity from our own rebellion. But this war is not going to take place on a battlefield that we understand or in a manner that we could ever hope to understand. So when we think we can understand why Jesus went to the cross, we're fooling ourselves. We will never understand the, the full spiritual reason until we're there on the other side of eternity. Because the battle that we know is happening, we don't get to see. Let me show you a couple things. In Ephesians 6, 10 and 12, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. In heavenly places. This is a battle we couldn't even hope to understand. In Daniel chapter 10, we're told as Daniel is praying to the Lord, the Lord dispatches an angel to come to Daniel. And when the angel finally gets there, the angel says, sorry, I've been fighting this demon for three weeks. 21 days. The angel of the Lord was locked in combat with the prince of Persia. That's what the scripture says. We know that to be the devil. As for some people, this is just weird. But this is what scripture is teaching us. The angel of the Lord, 21 days, could not defeat by himself, the power of the enemy. So God dispatched another angel to end the fight. 21 days. And Daniel's going, I guess God's not going to answer that prayer. Finally, the angel shows up with exactly what God wants him to know. Now, I want you to think about something. Have you ever desperately needed something from God? And you're praying, and that answer's not coming? And then sometime down the road... A month or two down the road, something comes into your mind. And because you have forgotten the need, you didn't hear the answer. Because sometimes the answer you need is locked in a battle for your soul on a battlefield you couldn't hope to understand. So when we come to God, this is why I think people should keep prayer journals. When we come to God with these needs... We should trust that he's gonna, he's gonna respond. So when he come to him, when we come to him, he listens. But this battle for our soul, could you imagine the battlefield that's taking place on? There are spiritual things at work we couldn't even comprehend. Could you imagine if God made you aware of all the spiritual, uh, spiritual battles going on around you? We'd lose our mind. But he did show us something amazing. See, we may not have any idea what this war looks like, but we do know that the death of Christ on the cross was the key to our victory. 
We do know that it was the key to our victory. Christ is the reason we won the war. See, the, sometimes we don't realize this. The war's over. The devil has already lost. We just have to have faith in that and believe in that. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, from Genesis on through, God begins to lay out the plan for us, for our redemption. God is laying out the plan so that we can understand what he's about to do. Because we have to play a part in this. We played a part in our fall. We have to play a part in, the other, in our redemption. Now, I know for Calvinists, this blows their mind. We're not talking about works. We're talking about a choice. I'm going to show you what I mean here in a second. God chose the people through whom the good news would come. That was Israel, the weakest, most insignificant people in, in the, uh, of that time. Because God brings out his strength through weakness. He brought them an understanding of himself, of righteousness, and of sin, and its terrible penalty. And he did that through the Ten Commandments and through the law of sin and atonement. He gave him them his word. But what no one understood was that he was not only teaching us about sin today, he was teaching us about the cost of sin and teaching us about how this war would eventually be won. Because the battle's real. He's showing us how he's going to win this battle. The death of an innocent in the place of a guilty, in the place of the guilty. Now think about this. It was mankind's selfish rebellion that led to the fall. But it was Jesus's selfless obedience that won the war. Our selfish rebellion was against the word of God. Jesus's selfless obedience was to the word of God. He didn't just come willy-nilly and be like, kill me, it's all done. He came in obedience. He came, lived, died, and rose in accordance to the word of God. So his selfless obedience cleaned up the mess of our selfish, selfish rebellion. Do you see how that balanced the scales? Now, I don't know what that looked like in the spiritual, but man, I would have loved to see that. Now, if you think about this, throughout the centuries, we're told through the prophets all that we would need to know to believe Jesus is who he said he was. Think about this, Isaiah seven fourteen. that he would be born a virgin. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God's with us. God with us. God in the flesh. This is God. He is here. That's his name. We were told they'd be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. I don't know what that word means, but there you go. Though you are little among the, uh, the thousands of Judah, yet you, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forths are from old, from everlasting. The one who's going to come from you has always been here from the very beginning. And what do we learn from John? Jesus was the word. He was with God in the beginning, and, and, and everything was made through him. He was there. So this is the one coming from Bethlehem. So we know that he's going to be born of a virgin. We know where he's going to be born. In Daniel chapter 9, we're told when he's going to be born. Seventy weeks are determined for, you peop, uh, for your people and for your holy city. Listen to this. To finish the transgression. To make an end of sin. To make a reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. 
Now, there's a, there's a process in the Old Testament called the year-day scale. If you take every day that prophecy has and you change those days into year, seven times 70, you get 490. Now, at the end of that 490, there's one week set aside, and the Messiah will show up at the, end of that, at the beginning of that week, and the Messiah will be cut off in the middle of that week. From the time that Daniel got that vision, 483 years later, Jesus shows up on the scene to be baptized by John. That wasn't his birth. It was his baptism. For three and a half years, he ministered. And he was cut off when he died on the cross. Now, here's the cool thing about this. Three and a half years later was the stoning of Stephen when the gospel was carried all the way through all the nations. We're told... All of this stuff. Over 300 prophecies given about Jesus. He'd be a descendant of Isaac, Genesis 17, 19. He'd be in the line of David, 2 Samuel, uh, and, uh, and in fulfilled in Luke. That he would spend time in Egypt, Hosea 11, 1. That he'd be betrayed, Psalm 41, Zechariah 11. That he would be crucified with criminals, Isaiah 53, verse 12. Do I need to keep going with this? Over 300 prophecies of Jesus. We're also told that he would be sacrificed for our sin. Isaiah 53, 4 verses, uh, verses 4 through 10. So surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him uh, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He, is led, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the, tra- for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. God is constantly telling us these things. In verse 9 it says, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, crucified with criminals, buried in a rich man's tomb. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord, listen to this, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What else does God have to do for us to be convinced that we can trust his word? What else does God, what else does God have to tell us for us to just realize that Jesus is the answer to the question. How could the death of Christ be good news? Because now it's over. The battle has been won. When Jesus says that he brings the gospel, the gospel is at hand. I'm preaching the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is, I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and maker of earth. And Jesus Christ is only begotten. We believe that man was created by God, that man sinned against God. And for thousands of years, God created a way. He worked out his plan of salvation through the people of Israel until the time was right. He sent his son to fulfill the plan. 
God constantly calls the law, calls the law something we can't fulfill. We couldn't hope to live up to all the law. That was the point. The point of the law was not to give us a way to save ourselves. The point of the law was to bring frustration. And we're told this in the New Testament, to bring frustration because we can't save ourselves. None of us are good enough. But I've heard preachers today say that Jesus wasn't God. Jesus was just a man in right standing with God. And that if you're in right standing with God, you could have died on the cross for the sins of of everyone as well. I, I... I can't even, I can't even under, I don't even want to entertain the judgment that waits for these people. In case you're wondering who that was, that was Kenneth Copeland. Look it up for yourself. Don't believe me. Last piece of scripture. And we're going to wrap up. When people say that you can't prove what the gospel is and that Jesus' death on the cross has nothing to do with sin and atonement and forgiveness, have obviously never read their Bible. I think I've proven that by now. But let's do one more in Hebrews chapter 9. This is a little long, and I apologize, but you'll understand why here in a second. Um, While I'm reading this, if the worship team can kind of work its way back up, that would be great. But the Messiah has appeared, a high priest of the good things that have come, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats or calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctified uh, for purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse our consciousness, consciences from dead, uh, from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promises of the internal inheritance because a death has taken place for the redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Can I read that again? Because a death has taken place for the redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For the transgression of us believing arrogantly enough that we could be God. A death has taken place to redeem that sin. Where a will exists, and we're talking about a will when someone dies, when they will things to people, just so you know what that's talking about. Where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. Because the will leaves things for you, correct? For a will is valid only when people die. Since it is never enforced while the one who made it is living. That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. He's equating the first, the Old Testament to a will, to Jesus' will. This is what I leave you. My faith I leave, my, my peace I leave you. I think that's so amazing. Before I go on, can, when, you know the pastor when Jesus says, I leave you my peace, my peace I leave you. You know in Hebrew that word means, the, basically the, the word means um, uh, the destruction of the authority that bounds you to, to chaos and destruction. 
When you look at the Hebrew letters that spell the word peace, shalom, it means to destroy the authority that has bound you to chaos and destruction. Jesus says, my peace, I leave you. <laughs> I, I love it. It's just so amazing. For when every command had been, uh, been proclaimed by Moses and all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats along with the water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Please listen. And without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness. If you want to know why Jesus had to die, there it is. There can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And it has to be innocent blood for the benefit of the guilty, as spelled out in the law. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in heaven to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. Jesus was the better sacrifice. The Messiah did not enter the sanctuary made of, um, excuse me, uh, made with hands, only a model of the of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times, as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages, for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. When, when Tony Jones says, you cannot clearly state what the gospel is, he clearly, this guy is a theologian and a teacher at a Bible college. He's obviously a bad one. I question whether or not he actually reads the Bible instead of his feminist and liberation theology, as you saw in the, in the video there. For the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see what happens when you don't don't value the word of God? And just as it is appointed once to die, and after this judgment, also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for it. To bring salvation to those who are waiting for it. How is this good news? Because it's already over. It's already over. I lied to you. I had two more scriptures. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not not, not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear underneath it. What's the way of escape? It's the path of Christ. There's nothing that's coming after you. God, the devil isn't coming after you in a way that he hasn't come after other people before. Here's the best one of all. I'm just going to read it to you because I forgot to put it on my slides. Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. You can go ahead and start playing, Ashley. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. It is done. You notice in the vision, he doesn't say, It's going to happen at some point. He says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the foundation of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But listen to this. Listen to this very carefully. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Let me ask you something. If the death of Jesus is the good news, which it is, because he has brought us something unbelievable. He has brought us redemption from ourselves. He has brought us everything that we will ever need to be made right with God. And all he's asking you to do is trust his word. If we are to follow in the footsteps of Christ, then by following the footsteps of Christ, we follow with selfless obedience to the word of God, not selfish rebellion to the word because we don't like the way it makes us feel. Selfless obedience to the word of God is the path of righteousness. that's the path that Jesus laid out before us.